regardless of where you stand on the matter of data science sexiness, it's simply impossible to ignore the continuing importance of data as well as our ability to analyze, organize, and contextualize them. Data are changing how our businesses and societies function. They are being used to solve a ton of interesting problems and shaping the questions we can ask of the world around us. Hi, I'm James Lee, and this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. Welcome to another episode of Datacast. Today I'm on the live with Ankit Gupta. He is a data scientist at Crisis Textline, a New York-based not-for-profit tech startup providing 24-7 free text-based crisis support to individuals. At Crisis Textline, Ankit developed an AI-driven trash system that detects signals of suicidality within the first few messages sent by texters. Using this trash system, uh, the counselors can serve uh, 93% of at-risk texters in under five minutes. So yeah, so Ankit, uh, welcome to the show and we're looking forward to learn more about your work there. Thanks James, uh, thank you for having me on your podcast. Awesome, so let's start out with your education. Uh, so I saw you did your undergrad degree back in India at the Amity School of Engineering and Tech, uh, studying um, computer science and engineering. So can you discuss your college experience? Absolutely. Um, so as a child, I realized early on that um, I learned very fast and very well by applying concepts. Uh, so it's more on the practical side of things rather than theoretical side of things. And whenever I got introduced to new concepts in physics or maths or economics, I always thought about their impact in the real world. So during undergrad, I naturally gravitated towards courses that required creating projects or some sort of um, applicability. Now, a few examples being microprocessors or the capstone project that, uh, that is required during the final year of undergrad. And really, one of the best experiences happened during summer breaks. Um, I interned at my dad's office. He held a senior position at one of the leading semiconductor manufacturing firms in India. Um, I got to pretty much work and get the first-hand experience in different business verticals. And that experience really taught me to to think in systems. Uh, What does it mean when two business verticals interact with each other? How they are really dependent on the outcomes of each other? And that was probably one of the biggest stepping stones in my life. And so your first job out of school, you working as a senior solution integrator at Ericsson, where you stayed for four years. So how was your experience? At- yeah, um, I was really fortunate to start off at a really, really big firm. Ericsson, as you know, is one of the biggest companies out there in the world. They have a huge presence. And I joined Ericsson as an application engineer, uh, which meant we had to support, rather, our team had to support and maintain applications that were serving more than 10,000 users across the world, 24-7. And I joined a really small team at the time because Ericsson was still growing uh, back in India. So our team size was about 30, which meant um, my role expanded beyond what was agreed. So 
I really got to understand how the application uh, was serving, what was the user experiences, what were their pain points, and how we could improve. So again, going back to uh, thinking in systems, what made it more interesting uh, and compelling was the application itself was connected to 17 other systems across the world. And changing one tiny little code would mean what was the impact on those 17 other systems. And so it really helped me understand how to really think through the impact of even one tiny little change in the code and what might be the outcomes and the impact on the users as well as uh, the integrated systems. And a very big part of your job at Ericsson uh, was uh, global collaboration and communication with clients over the world, uh, including the, UA the US, the UK, and Nigeria. So what were some of the main challenges that you encounter in uh, this aspect of the job? Yeah, so I would start with uh, the experiences. I think it was really turned me around as a, as a software engineer, as a professional, uh, because now not only I was serving um, clients within India, um, my management thought that I could serve clients across the globe. So my first experience was in Nigeria. I traveled there. Uh, the, the project was mainly about user migrations. So we had to, or rather I had to train them and teach uh, the newer systems that we were building for them and migrate them from their existing systems to our newer systems. And that really is a big challenge because one of the toughest problems out there is changing the ways of working for humans. And how do you teach them to, first of all, how do you convince them to start using new processes, new systems, um, and how to make that process and transition seamless? So uh, it really helped me understand uh, where, what challenges or what pain points the user might experience when I asked them to do X, Y, Z instead of ABC, which they have been doing for more than 10 years. So that was Nigeria. Uh, UK had a different business requirement. It was more about, again, integrating our systems to uh, our client systems. And that, that had different uh, user requirements as well as uh, business needs. And with the US, uh, we had an existing integration that was not working well. Um, our success rate was about 72% in terms of transactions. Uh, so I worked with our counterparts in the US uh, for three months and really tried to figure out what were the root cause behind the failure rates. And within three months, we were able to scale out and improve the transaction rates to 99.97%. So all in all, my experiences with different clients gave me different experiences about the challenges, the pain points, and then how do we come about and figure out the, the shortest possible solution or the simplest solution that can be scaled out in long term. You uh, spent another two years at um, call services working as an Oracle application techni technical consultant. So how was this job different from um, your, your time at Ericsson? Yeah, that was a very interesting time of my life because um, at Ericsson, I was pretty much leading a team of application engineers. And then I decided to shift to a very small organization, uh, primarily for two reasons. A, I wanted to explore a different role, which meant at core services, 
I was working as an architect. So I was responsible for creating the blueprint of the application. And then I was also responsible for designing and development of that application right from front end to back end, all the way through. The other challenge that I experienced shifting away from a bigger organization to a smaller organization is processes. Because once you begin, or once you start your career in a bigger organization, you're very, pretty much attuned and molded in set of processes, right? Now, in a smaller organization, um, it is still growing, which means the processes are continuously evolving, which means that on a very good day, you may have a good process, but on a typical day, uh, you may be creating new processes uh, with your clients and then with your staff members. So uh, it gave me a different view of uh, what does a growing business looks like as opposed to an already established firm. So after working for six years in India, you decided to go to the U.S. for a master's degree in uh, information system management at Carnegie Mellon. So what is the main motivation for, for this decision? Yeah, absolutely. Um, at the time when I was working at Core Services, um, I saw this opportunity of this revolution of big data and how it was being applied, uh, specifically in mission-driven organizations like United Nations, World Bank, and I read their research papers and white papers in my free time. And I was truly fascinated of how they were leveraging data and making policy decisions, uh, improving uh, the impact on human lives um, in totality. In that regards, I thought, okay, I think this might be a good opportunity to shift away uh, because now I, now, now I have a good understanding of systems. How can I also work with data to really change the way we make decisions or build products? And at Carnegie Mellon, I think it gave me a good opportunity to explore courses. And not only that, I think um, one of the key courses that I took was machine learning. Yeah, it was like a really good opportunity. And I really wanted to leverage data and apply it in in service of humanity. So uh, I, I saw that you also worked as a teaching assistant during your time at CMU for a couple of like uh, uh, courses on Python, right? So yeah. uh, you know what? Um, what was what are some of the materials that uh, you cover? Yeah. So um, I before taking up as, as a role of teaching assistant, um, I had some really good experience with Python. Um, not only that, I took. Uh, courses uh, during my master's in Carnegie Mellon. And so I saw this opportunity of uh, giving it back to the community of students. And so I worked with a professor um, and also built out the course material of what we should be teaching, uh, which is more in tune with industry because typically what happens is uh, there's a big gap between university and industry. So I worked out uh, with the professor that these are these are the 10 things that we can teach to students so that that would really help them prepare, uh, at least get them going and give them momentum um, to, to build projects. So what does that mean? Uh, we, of course, we started off with some really basic um, concepts like list, uh, list comprehensions, dictionaries, tuples. But then we quickly scaled up to uh, building websites, um, data analytics, pandas, um, all the core concepts that you would be probably applying uh, right now in, in your internship or in your career. 
for your master degree, what capstone project that you uh, finish? Yeah, uh, so I was involved in a team of six members, and uh, we worked with our advisor uh, to help out uh, a local hospital in Pittsburgh. And the goal was really to help them understand what their biggest drivers and cost was because they were trying to optimize their cost models. So we spent about um, six months working with their staff members, understanding their pain points, understanding where what were the really cost drivers were that was harming their budget. During the course of this journey, we actually built out um, a full-fledged web app where they could plug in their data and that would tell them exactly where and when during a certain process. These are the things that were really harming their budget. And then they could work with their vendors to optimize uh, cost-making decisions. So that was like a, that was a really, really good experience, uh, in my opinion. So during the summer of two, uh, 2016, you uh, got an internship at Crisis Text Live. So let's say for the audience who are not familiar with the company, can you give a brief overview of um, Crisis Text Live? Absolutely. Uh, so Crisis Text Line is one of the largest mental health organizations in the uh, U.S. It's a 24-7 free nationwide service um, for anyone experiencing mental health crisis. It could be anxiety, depression, suicide, or PTSD, or LGBTQ. And the way it works is anyone can reach out to us using 741-741. And when someone texts us, uh, they will be connected to a live trained human crisis counselor who will be there for them, with them, and try to bring them from a heightened state uh, to a calm state in about, let's say, 45 to 60 minutes. And the goal is to really support people in pain. And we have been there for about six years. Uh, quite recently, we launched in Canada and UK, and specifically in UK, um, the Royal Family Foundation, uh, they launched a service in partnership with us. So we are really excited about our global expansion. Uh, so, so during your internship there, um, I saw that you wrote an article on LinkedIn called Charge for Crisis Counseling, How Our Algorithms Prioritize Suicidal Texts. Can you, uh, I guess, just you know, summarize some of the key insights from doing this project? Absolutely. So just to give you a little bit of background context, um, majority of the texters reach out to us uh, between 10 p.m. and 6 a.m. And that means how do we serve the most vulnerable population at scale? About If we look back in our data, about 25% to 30% of those texters experience some form of suicidal ideation. So we really wanted to understand, um, can we build products? Can we leverage data that we already have uh, to build or to serve rather these the most vulnerable population in the fastest possible way. And so we decided to leverage uh, five years of data at the time, um, thought about can we use machine learning uh, to build out a triage system that could detect someone at the risk of ideation within two or three messages that they're sending to us. And so, so that became really uh, my internship project during the summer. And the goal was really to build out a prototype uh, just to test out if this works. Uh, it was never really meant for production. And so within two months, we built out a prototype could detect someone at the risk of suicide within first two or three messages with an accuracy of about 88 to 89% at the time. Yeah, so I used 
to build out the prototype, I used uh, the traditional machine learning models like MyBase or support vector machines, random forest. Um, and it was a very fulfilling project in terms of internship. So I, I suppose that you have a very good experience there and that's why you decided to come back as a full-time data, data scientist at Crisis Textile since um, early 2017, right? Since then, like over the past two years or so, what were some of the interesting projects that you've been working on there? Right after internship, um, I worked with, I had a discussion with my boss and um, we worked out a plan for joining full-time. So I went back to college uh, for the fall semester and the final semester where I worked on the capstone that I discussed before. And during January 2017, I joined the company again as full-time data scientist. And it's been really interesting for the past two or three years. Um, basically, I got to work across all the business verticals in the last two or three years, uh, working across staff members all the way from executives to uh, directors and uh, members of different team. But it's purely, it's purely been a cross-functional experience. And that really helped me understand uh, how, again, if I take example of Ericsson days, how different business verticals are interacting to each other. So I really leveraged uh, my experience from Ericsson and applied here, which kind of gave me an advantage already. In terms of projects, um, I have been involved in some of the biggest policy changes in the organization. So last year, we did a really thorough research project to understand the effective ways of asking someone about suicidal ideation. Because it's a difficult conversation. Um, it's, it can be awkward, it can be uh, weird to, you know, directly ask, are you feeling suicidal? So what's a good way of asking someone about that? Uh, turns out, uh, there, there's a way that you can, there's a formula rather, where you can, you can ask someone about their ideation. Um, it's called um, expression of care, mm -hmm. which means that, and to give you an example, if I, as a counselor, I'm talking to a texter, one way to ask about ideation would be um, with all the things that you've shared, um, I want to make sure that you're safe. Um, are you feeling suicidal or are you thinking about taking an action? And it turned out that this method works pretty well and it's very effective. First of all, it places, it empowers the texter, right? So it really validates and acknowledges the pain that they're experiencing, but also at the same time, we're trying to make sure that they're in a safe place. And uh, yeah, so it was a very interesting project. I also built a model that could detect uh, a surge in texture volume with a lead time of six to eight hours. And really it was necessary to build out. Why? Because uh, many a times it so happens <laughs> that uh, the texters, they talk about us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, any social media that you can think about. Why? Because they, they loved our service. They found value in our service. So they want to share with others and they want to share about our service to other people who might be experiencing pain. Now, that being said, sometimes uh, some of the tweets went those viral, which means that um, there's a network effect coming into play. Mm -hmm. So if, if, let's say, taking an example of Twitter, let's say I use the tweets about us, but they don't have a good following. However, they might be connected to someone else who might be an influencer. Now, if that person tweets about us, 
immediately we would experience um, a surge in volume by four to five times the usual daily average volume, uh, which is good because more and more people um, are reaching out to us to express their pain. But it also means that we have to prepare ourselves operationally. So that really became the genesis and the inspiration rather the motivation to build out this model. A very interesting problem, I guess, to just to scale it up, you know, your technologies in order, in order to meet the meet the growing needs of clients, right? So it's certainly exactly. a, a very important project, both in terms of the of the value as well as the as the business aspect itself. So uh, yeah, I was reading up through a couple of uh, articles on the blog from company, um, and you wrote a piece called "Embracing AI to Save Lives," in which you talk about using machine learning to identify previously missed imminent risk conversation uh, and uh, reduce false alarms. Um, so I guess like, can you quickly, um, you know, give a kind of brief summary on, on kind of like how machine learning is being used to, to do this kind of stuff? Absolutely. So uh, just for uh, the context, context of audience, um, I'll begin with what does imminent risk conversations mean? It means that a texter, before, even before reaching out to us, they've thought about four key things. They, they have an ideation to take their life. Uh, they have a plan. Uh, they also have the means. It could be, um, let's say, pills, or it could be something else, like a knife or, you know, like um, some serious stuff. And also, they have a time frame of taking action within 24 to 48 hours. And so that becomes an imminent risk conversation. Um, now, how do we detect that? When the texter reaches out to us, we ask them a few questions um, to, to understand these four key parameters. Right? Our hope is to identify these textures at the earliest possible way so that we can work out a safety plan with them to keep them safe. There's a very small proportion, about 1%, when what happens is that uh, sometimes the texture may not agree or may not be able to come up with a safety plan. In those situations, we have to call 911 or emergency services and we have to work with them to locate the texture and save their lives. Now, to scale this entire process, uh, that's where machine learning really helps us automate as well as scale the process. But really, so what does your metrics here come into play? Uh, it cannot be accuracy because accuracy is a very abstract and big <laughs> term. So we thought about, all right, what what are the two key metrics that we really care about? And turns out um, it was reducing false alarms, or sorry, the missed cases. We want to minimize the missed cases as much as possible. And even if it means um, increasing false positives a little bit, we are fine. But we don't want to miss out on anyone. Mm -hmm. And that's where uh, we started exploring with machine learning models and how we build out a truly scalable system, what type of models we could explore um, in terms of that could really help us minimize the false alarms or missed cases as much as possible. I can give you a few examples of what false alarms or missed cases would mean. So let's say a message would say, I'm not suicidal, uh, just depressed. Uh, so it really indicates the texture may not be suicidal at all, right? Um, and just to back up a little bit, um, when we started, off, started out, 
um, our first version of Shiat system was very simple. It was a keyword-based search. And we thought about, we came up with a list of 50 keywords that we thought might be associated with someone at the risk of suicide. Mm-hmm. And these 50 words uh, came through literature study. So what are those words? Those words were kill, pills, suicide, emptying, et cetera, et cetera. Now that simple solution worked pretty well. Uh, we were able to identify more than half of textures at imminent risk. But that simple solution also led to complications. And there were two problems that um, came into play. Uh, false alarms. So a message like, I'm not suicidal, just depressed, was getting flagged as imminent depressed because of the occurrence of the word suicide or suicidal. Right? We also missed out texters who were saying, I'm walking towards the bridge because uh, bridge, the word bridge itself might be having totally two different meanings. Right. In, in another world, you, if you're talking about bridge, let's say Brooklyn Bridge, it could indicate that you're just walking towards the bridge to have a stroll or just for leisure or fun. In crisis intervention space, it has a totally different meaning, which would mean that a texter, if they mention bridge, that would mean that they're about to take their life, right? Mm -hmm. So we thought about how do we minimize these false alarms and missed cases, missed imminent risk cases, and that's where we... Uh, we thought about transitioning away from keyword-based search to leveraging machine learning to scale out this process. I see. So uh, there's a heavy component of um, sentiment analysis in, in this kind of stuff, right? You try to have to uh, extract the, you know, the decode the meaning of, of the text as well as um, the, the mood, the sentiment of, of the text there as well, isn't it? Yeah, so the way we understand uh, the sentiment, or rather, in this case, it becomes a risk, uh, because right now we are, or really the true goal of the model is to understand the risk, or rather the initial risk of the texture when they come to us. So for us, uh, there are two key risks. Uh, either the texture is at low risk, or the texture might be at high risk. A low risk example would be the texture might be um, anxious about, let's say, tomorrow's exam, or they might be anxious or depressed or some other thing. A high-risk texture would indicate that they have an ideation or if there's a spectrum of ideation. Uh, it could be from ideation all the way to imminence, imminent risk. And so that's where um, this is a classic machine learning problem. You have two outcomes. You have to detect based on the first two or three messages either your outcome is high risk or either your outcome is low risk. Uh, so you have a binary outcome problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for that, we tried out multiple methods. Uh, we tried out point-wise mutual information with n-grams. We tried out random forest uh, with the goal of really minimizing the missed cases as well as false alarms to the least possible extent. In another piece called Detecting Crisis, an AI solution that you wrote last year, you talk about um, uh, the three uh, major areas of impact that AI has had on, on crisis text line business, including the improvement in detection, which we just discussed, uh, the improvement in wait times, as well as um, international expansion. Um, so uh, since then, what are the impacts that uh, AI machine learning has made on the organization? 
yeah, so uh, we are in a phase where we want to um, really provide empathy at scale. And that would mean, first of all, how do we improve towards minimizing the wait times specifically for high risk textures? Because right now we are well positioned to serve 93% of high risk individuals in under five minutes, but we can do a lot better. Also, we are uh, expanding globally. So the vision of our founder, Nancy Loveland, is to uh, really scale out and uh, expand in 15 to 20 countries in the next three to five years. Mm -hmm. And that poses some really interesting challenges. How do we serve non-English textures, right? Mm -hmm. So that goes into, in terms of scalability, I think there's this good opportunity to, to leverage AI and machine learning uh, to use translation services. And right now, uh, it's a hot topic out there in the industry. Uh, if you look at Twitter, then you, you'll find some really, really good healthy productive conversations around neural machine translations, attention models, and all the state-of-the-art deep learning models. So I think uh, in next year or five years, we would be really going full force <laughs> in terms of leveraging deep learning to, to help our organization uh, scale out. Mm -hmm. And I'm very excited about that because right now uh, there's so much going on uh, if you look at like every day, you'll find new research papers, uh, you'll find new conferences, uh, you'll find really active participants. Um, we are living in an age where deep learning is becoming more and more accessible. You know, like uh, you have people like Jeremy Howard, who are really like, they are, they are, de they have devoted their lives to teach students. And that's a really, really good thing, like uh, to, to bring forward deep learning, make it less complex, make it less vague and more applicable for people uh, to apply deep learning in, in order to solve important problems. And uh, talking about Nancy Lubin, I actually know about Crisis Text Live because I listened to a couple of like um, different podcast episodes that she did with like a variety of uh, uh, people, you know, she was in massive scale, she was in like this weekend startup, so um, I'm just kind of curious, you know, how, how she as a CEO Absolutely. So uh, just to give you a little bit of background, Nancy uh, is a serial entrepreneur in nonprofit space. Um, she has founded Dress for Success. Uh, she was the CEO for uh, Do Something, which is one of the biggest nonprofit organizations for youth campaigns. Uh, it's much larger than Boy Scout and Girl Scout combined. And really, the idea of Crisis Sex Line came to her while she was serving as the CEO in Do Something where it all started with one single message that pretty much changed the course of everyone's life. So really, during one of the campaigns, um, I think one young texter reached out to them and the opening message was like this. Uh, he won't stop raping me. It's my dad. I don't know what to do. Are you there? And that really, Nancy got deeply invested in this whole idea because she was like, one texter is saying this, there might be other people who might be in pain. And from there on, she, she worked towards building an organization that could help people in pain. And the first two hires were the chief technology officer and chief data scientist. So technology and data was, the organization started with technology and data in the front. And that's really important in these world because right now we, 
are living in data-driven organization, data-driven world, um, and really truly understand how we can leverage data to help out um, more people and solve some really grave societal problems. So Nancy is a visionary leader. Um, she, she's always thinking about how to improve the services at scale. Um, she is deeply invested uh, in the organization and in every policy decision, every product decision, she makes sure that she uh, gives her approval and uh, she sits down with us, understand how we're approaching the problem and and also she's a great coach actually. Like if you spend 15 minutes with her, you will learn a lot because she has this massive, massive experience of running organizations uh, seeing the top level problems and how to take them forward. So I've been very fortunate to have some really good conversations with Nancy um, time and again. Obviously, a big part of your job, Crisis Text Live, is uh, working with uh, natural language processing, right, NLP, because, you know, the data is coming in form of text. So what, what are some of the recommended books or resources that you recommend for people who want to learn more about NLP in general? and uh, sentiment analysis in, in specific? Yeah, I would say, uh, so <laughs> there's some really good books out there and you'll find Kaggle and some really, really good resources uh, to learn. My recommendation here would be pick one project that really, really you're passionate about. So let's say you're passionate about soccer, you might be passionate about clean energy, you might be passionate about fashion. It could be anything, right? Understand uh, what's the major problem out there. Pick that problem and then think about, all right, first of all, what's the size of this problem and what would be an ideal outcome and how you can leverage machine learning to to solve that problem and reach to the desired outcome. I think there's some really good competitions out there in Kaggle, so that's a really good starting point, uh, in my opinion. Uh, if you're interested in deep learning, then uh, you can take... The, the course by Jeremy Howard. Uh, he teaches very well. He makes sure that he really simplifies things so that even someone not really familiar will at least get that starting momentum. And really, like, it's hard. So many times I've seen that people start doing five or six projects in one go, uh, which is good. Uh, you want to try as many things as possible. Um, I take a different approach. I just stick to one problem or one project and like really go knee deep um, because the more you start delving deep dive or do a deep dive into a problem, the more sub problems you will discover. And it really helps you understand the domain space because understanding domain space is the key. I can apply any fancy models, but unless I don't understand the domain space, uh, I would not truly understand the problem that I'm trying to solve. Any project that I've worked on, uh, the way we have gone about that is, or rather I would say, any project that involved machine learning or natural language processing, the way I went about those projects, professionally or personally, was uh, splitting 80-20. 80-20 was, 80% time was actually spent on understanding the space. Uh, so let's say I have been involved in a project related to clean energy. I really wanted to understand what this clean energy means, uh, what metrics play into come into play, what factors come into play, what are the challenges. And so, and that 80% time would also be spent on, all right, of all the problems in that space, what is that one problem that really I really want to solve? Because you can start anywhere, but you have to start somewhere. And so that 
20% time is highly important for your the remaining 20% time of execution to be really productive. So if you can strategize your 80% well, uh, your execution would be very seamless because now you have a clear understanding of here is the problem, here is the scope, here is the, the size of the problem. This is my desired outcome. And I'm going to use XYZ models to reach to that position. But not only that, once you design your models, of course, there are going to be exceptions. Uh, there will be missed cases because no model or no algorithm can be 100% correct. So you also have to think about when my model fails, what interventions or safety nets I'm going to put into place because that's very, in terms of application, it's very important, especially in business. So a crisis sex line, even before building out models, we spent a lot of time thinking about when the model fails, what human interventions are we going to, going to put into place? And that triggers a whole different conversation with policymakers, with staff members, because first we have to build our safety net and then we build our models. Besides your job, I saw that you uh, also participated in Toastmaster New York, which is an organization that um, operates worldwide for the purpose of promoting communication and public speaking skill. So how has your involvement with Toastmaster helped you in um, uh, different aspects of being a data scientist? Yeah, absolutely. Um, a big part of data science that I think is still not being covered extensively, uh, especially in universities and um, across the board, is communication. Because as a data scientist, it's very important to communicate uh, your insights especially to executive, how do you make your insights in a way or how do you frame them in a way that is actionable? I can come up with a very basic or like a very tirade example, let's say that I built this model, here are the outcomes. <laughs> the follow-up question would be, okay, now what? So that's the key element. And I think uh, that was one of the motivations for me to join Toastmasters, which is to say that how do I communicate the outcomes of my models that I'm building with staff members who may not be acquainted with machine learning or who may not be acquainted or who may not be data savvy? And it happens all the time. So how do I, how do I communicate better? Um, another part of the motivation was that because we are in this unique space of applied machine learning and crisis or intervention space, um, I get to give a lot of conferences, talks, and keynotes uh, so, because I'm an introvert, I wanted to get familiar or be more comfortable with stage. And that was one of the reasons I joined Toastmasters. And I thought I was fortunate enough to join um, possibly the old, second oldest club in New York City. I was formed in 1983. And I was very lucky to have some really, really great mentors. Um, I am in still touch with them. I made some really good friends out there. Uh, yeah, and over the course of time, I went on to become the VP membership of the club. Um, so Toastmasters is a very, I, I, would, I would highly recommend mm -hmm. anyone, everyone out there to at least experience Toastmasters for two to three months. Uh, even the first movie, at the end of first meeting, you will see a difference in yourself. Uh, you will never speak the same way you do because you will get some really good feedback on how to improve further. And Toastmasters is always about improvement. 
improvements. So Toastmasters has been a really good experience for me. Fantastic. Uh, so finally, um, how could you describe the data science community in uh, New York City? I think uh, data science community is thriving and growing with every day in New York City. You have NYU, uh, which is one of the biggest colleges out there for data science courses, which means that you have a lot of meetups out there. Um, you have different clubs. I used to go there. I don't go there anymore because of uh, time commitments. But I think that's a really good place to meet and network fellow data scientists. Um, I, there was one, there's one meter that I find really interesting, which is progressive hack nights. And there you can, anyone can be there. And the goal is to um, use and leverage data to solve uh, societal problems again. Mm -hmm. So I would highly encourage everyone out there to attend any of the meetups, be it progressive hack night or be it something else. Um, we also have one of the biggest um, volunteer-driven organization called DataKind. Mm -hmm. It's headquartered here in Brooklyn. Jake is a dear friend. Um, I have been, I have volunteered there for two to three projects, and it's, it's been a really fulfilling experience. Because what happens is, um, once you join a project, uh, you join as a team. So you you're pairing up with project managers, fellow data scientists, consultants. And you together work on a six month project uh, to actually help a nonprofit improve their processes, their outcomes, and help them scale. So, I, so I'm, I would highly recommend um, people to join DataKind, Progressive Hack Nights, and find meetups on meetup.com or Eventbrite, um, or even join conferences because there are so many conferences going out there. Uh, you have so many networking opportunities. Um, Network is your net worth, as they say. So you never know. You, you may never know what kind of projects you may land, or you may land some really good opportunities out there. Highly recommended. Join meetups, do meetups, but but only selected ones because if you join fifteen or twenty meetups, it's not it's going to consume a time. So try to keep it like three to four. Brilliant. I will. Put the, the the links of those organizations that you just mentioned in the show notes, so people can have a chance to take a look at those and maybe volunteer and you know join as they wish. Um, so Ankit, at this time of our podcast, we're gonna move on to the closing segment, in which I'm gonna ask you um three questions, and you can share the resources and uh, tactical advice for people who seeking them. Okay. Um, the first question is that. What are some of the companies which are doing exceptional data science work that you admire? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, I would say, for me, when it comes to interesting, so I would say um, there are for-profit companies and then there are non-profit companies. Uh, in non-profit companies, uh, you have crisis tech line. <laughs> so we are also hiring. Uh, come join us, work with us. Uh, we have a huge data set that you can work with. Uh, we also have an ongoing fellow research program where uh, students from universities, they can partner, partner with us. Uh, if they have a research question, they can come work with us. Um, the application is on the website. Uh, so I highly recommend looking at crisistextline.org. Uh, you also have DataKind. So, and then you have World Bank, you have United Nations. So there's so many mission-driven organizations that you can 
you can join, you have charity waters, um, for profits. I'm a big fan of Elon Musk, so I would have to say <laughs> SpaceX and Tesla is something I deeply admire, a huge fan. Um, but, but yeah, um, I would say uh, try to look over LinkedIn. Uh, there's some really, really good opportunities out there, especially why? Because deep learning and data science field is always evolving and booming. Uh, and it would go on at least for the next five or ten years for sure. The second question is that what is one book that you would recommend for people who want to develop a better analytical mindset? It's hard for me to pinpoint one book because for me, different books serve different needs. But really in terms of if I have to start thinking about data science, I think defining problem is one of the key and crucial elements of any data science project. So how do you understand a problem? How do you define a problem? Uh, how do you scope a problem, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I would say start with principles by Ray Dalio because that would help you critically think of why you are taking actions the way you are taking actions. So, and this is not a data science book. Uh, this is a this is a book about life. This is a book about profession, your career, your work. But I would certainly recommend reading uh, Principles by Ray Dalio. Yeah, that's a that's a great recommendation. You know, and um, I would also like to give another recommendation uh, about. How do you tell stories with data? So there's a book, there's a really, really, really good book called Storytelling with Data. Mm -hmm. um, and it's all about how do you convey data, data in the form of stories? Um, how do you frame your stories? How do you visually represent the data? What kind of charts you should be using? How do you minimize ink while maximizing information? So storytelling with data is another really good recommendation. Yeah, I actually just finished that book like not too long ago. Oh, yeah. so, nice. Yeah, what yeah. Do think? What do I think? Um, yeah, I mean, uh, one of the points I think that the author mentioned was like, think like a designer or something like that. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, so I think that's uh, that's really cool because uh, that bring up the, the the idea of like um, as a data scientist, you can be creative, right? Like. You, you can exercise your creativity in order to 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 how, how best to communicate your results. So that's what I really enjoy about this aspect of, of the job. Yeah, Ray Dalio principles. I mean, I, I really I'm a huge fan of the way that he incorporate uh, algorithmic thinking in, in in the way that he run Fishwater. So yeah, I mean that whole book was was really good in terms of um, you know for anyone who want to to make better decision right like. Uh, better, better mental models in order to, to, to lead and, and execute projects. So yeah, uh, great recommendation. And then the final question about Asha. Imagine that you can send out a tweet to all the aspiring data scientists on Twitter. What could you tweet about? That's an interesting question. What could I tweet about to data scientists? Alright, so I think what I would tweet about here is and I'll start with giving some context. Right now, there's this huge hype about that AI is going to take away human jobs. They're going to replace humans. And you always see some story or the other on media or social media or something else, always surfacing up. 
right? I have a different take, which is AI or machine learning is meant to complement human knowledge, not compete against it. So how can we leverage AI and machine learning work in tandem with humans and human knowledge to make the world better? That would be my tweet. This is a concise statement to to, to summary, a uh, good summary of um, you know I guess your your interest and you know uh, a, a, a a good vision for the future of like human plus plus intelligence, right? So Ankit, uh, really appreciate you spending the time this weekend with me, um, having this chat for my for my podcast. I enjoy learning about um, your background, your your experience, um, working for mission driven organization as well as, you know, uh, different advice and, and uh, nugget of wisdom in terms of um, how to um, be successful as a data scientist. And I'm sure that, um, you know, our audience is going to gain a lot of um, good advice from that as well. Um, I um, be sure to include all the links of the um, resources and organization that you mentioned into the show notes so people can get a chance to check them out. Uh, so, yeah, uh, I keep appreciate it and uh, enjoy the rest of your day. Uh, thanks, James. I had a really good conversation with you. It was a pleasure talking to you, and I wish you good luck with your career and your future as well. Well, that's the wrap for another episode of Datacast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm. If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now.